And, and I got hooked on two things. I, I got hooked on, on actually seeing how you could reverse this type of pandemic. But I, I also got hooked on the power of innovation in medical research, where we took a disease that no one had heard of in 1981. And by 1993, we could actually save lives from it because there was this global effort at the level of people, governments, and at the level of advocacy to drive science forward and bring something, uh, some solution forward where we could actually change lives. This is Decoding Digital, and I'm your host, Daniel Sachs. Every episode, we hear from someone who is working to build something new in the digital economy. Each guest has a unique perspective to share, and together we work to understand or decode a trend that is shaping our digital world. People around the globe are fighting a dangerous pandemic, COVID-19. But even before the virus emerged, infectious diseases were on the march, becoming more resistant to antibiotics and other drugs and threatening the lives of millions of people worldwide. Dr. Don Shepard, our guest on today's show, has been on the front lines of this battle for almost three decades. A doctor and a researcher, Don is a world-renowned expert on infectious fungal diseases. He's helped prestigious fellowships at the University of California and has published over 100 research papers today. He directs the McGill Interdisciplinary Initiative in Infection and Immunology, or MI4 for short, a project that aims to create an ecosystem of experts in medicine, technology, and other fields to fight infections and save lives. We're honored to hear from someone who is making the discoveries that are helping so many people stay healthy and live longer. Today, Don will discuss the impact of digital transformation on the medical field and speak to innovation that's happening at the front lines. Let's decode. Well, uh, thanks again, Don, for uh, doing this and for being on the show. It's really great to speak with you today. It's great to be here. Excellent. So uh, the last time we were connecting, uh, the world was quite a, a different place. You uh, visited us in San Francisco speaking to a group of entrepreneurs um, and innovators about uh, immunology and innovation um, and really the, the potential threat of infectious diseases on the world. And I don't think anyone really understood how impactful that potentially could be until uh, 2020 hit. So tell me a little bit about your research and how you evolved to create MI4. So I came into the world of infectious diseases actually a little bit backwards. And I started training in medicine. I trained in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And, and there was actually a pandemic going on then. And of course, it was the AIDS pandemic. And at the time I trained, it was the bad old days of AIDS when we had no drugs, no treatments. Uh, young guys that I was seeing every single day were dying of these crazy infections that no one had ever heard of. And, and I got very much uh, addicted to this type of intense medicine, these, these organisms that no one had ever heard of that were causing disease, taking care of these really sick people. And I decided I was going to be an AIDS doctor. I actually moved to San Francisco, where I started training as an HIV doctor right when the drugs came on the market. And it was the most incredible time in the most incredible city when we, we converted this death sentence disease to a chronic illness like we are now. And, and I got hooked on two things. I, I got hooked on, on actually seeing how you could reverse this type of pandemic. But I, I also got hooked on the power of innovation in medical research 
where we took a disease that no one had heard of in 1981, and by 1993, we could actually save lives from it because there was this global effort at the level of people, governments, and at the level of advocacy to drive science forward and bring something uh, some solution forward where we could actually change lives. And I really got addicted to that. And I went on in infectious diseases, looking at other pandemics, other organisms, other outbreaks, and trying to apply what we learned from that to moving forward, what we're dealing with now. And, and tell me a little bit more about the genesis for MI4 and what the mission is there. So MI4 stands for the McGill Interdisciplinary Initiative in Infection and Immunity. And you can see why we call it MI4, because this is only a 45-minute podcast. So basically what MI4 was, it was an effort to take all of the nodes of excellence of people working in the infectious disease and immunology space, connect them, and reach out to all of the peripheral groups who have their own expertise in allied areas and start to look at problems in the infection and immunity arena with different lenses, to bring in engineers, to bring in material scientists, social scientists, and we've seen the power of social science in how the outbreak has evolved, and to really look at things from these multidisciplinary teams to shake things up and get people to work together who never work together and try and harness the power of innovation through intellectual friction, quite frankly. Can you share an example of that? So the great example I used was um, the one that we actually applied here in the COVID outbreak. So early on, every single country had the same problem. They all wanted to test they all wanted to test as many people as possible, and they none of the countries had capacity. There was a huge run on buying the ingredients to do testing, from the swabs to the plastics to what was the rarest of all, the enzymes that went in the actual test, these little proteins that did the business of finding the virus. And when South Korea put in their huge test the entire country strategy, they sucked up the entire world supply of enzymes. And so Canada, the US, Europe, none of us could actually buy the stuff to do the testing. And our governments would say, oh, we're going to roll out 10,000 tests by tomorrow. We can do 10,000 swabs. But they sat in the labs because they didn't have the enzymes to test. So we ended up putting together a team of people that had absolutely nothing to do with designing testing. What it was, was a group of scientists who actually worked on studying enzymes as their day-to-day -day work. They never heard of COVID. They never heard of viral testing. But what they did was they made these types of enzymes on a daily basis because they couldn't do any of their work unless they were really good at making enzymes. And they linked up with people who worked in supply chains, with people who worked in clinical testing laboratories. And what they did was they actually built essentially what is a generic solution to this proprietary problem. And they linked with bioresources in federal and provincial governments, these large scale bioreactor companies that make proteins but have no idea how to make tests. And when you link those two together with the testing labs, you actually made a, a homemade built by McGill solution to roll out the enzymes necessary to support testing. And within 30 days, these guys had actually built, optimized, and delivered on the prototype. And by day 60, they had rolled out enough to test our entire province. And now they've built, rolled out enough to test 
all of Canada and are going to start exporting these protocols worldwide so that every country has a safety net of being able to make their own testing reagents and fixing these sort of global supply chain breaks with homemade solutions. And, and that really was innovation. None of these people knew how to make a COVID test. Let's decode that because there's a lot there. So culturally, you're bringing together people across different disciplines, industries, educational backgrounds, you know, public, private. Did you see a culture clash and how, how, did, how did you align everyone on a vision under such a strict uh, timeline? So it was a, an extreme challenge. There's absolutely no question. Academics do not have a clue how business works. Neither really understood how government agencies work. And in Canada, of course, with a, with a single payer uh, healthcare system, we had to try and work around the, the sort of leviathan that is our healthcare system. And nobody really understood how to do this. But by leveraging the energy the frustration and the pressures that were coming top down with the willingness and flexibility to go bottom up, that was the magic. That was the secret sauce. If, if you hadn't had this simultaneous public pressure to, oh my gosh, we need to fix the fact that we're not testing, with a bunch of people that didn't know what the rules were supposed to be, and that allowed people to meet in the middle and find ways to do things that were not the way they had been doing them before. What were some of the communication challenges you encountered in bringing these groups together? The, the first and biggest challenge was they didn't speak the same language. I mean, when you start talking about large-scale manufacturing companies and making things that are going to be used that have to be precise because you're using them for human medicine, and you compare that with a boutique scientist who's used to essentially cookbook and, and chef-like recipes where you add a dish of this and a dab of that to twist it to your own devices. Those are two completely different cultures. They don't even use the same language and they don't understand the priorities of how you take something that you make work perfectly for you into something that can roll out across an entire country and that's gonna work the same on Tuesday at four o'clock as it works on Wednesday at three o'clock in Saskatchewan and in California. And, and those are really completely different cultures. And we had uh, recently Eric Reese on the show, who is the author of Lean Startup Methodology and talking about agile cycles. To me, this is a perfect example of taking something really quickly, testing it, uh, having a hypothesis and iterating. What happened in that 60-day time frame? Was the, the first answer the right one? Or how did you address the cycles of learning to get to an outcome that could ultimately uh, you know, result in success? Well, there were a few key elements. So we had to identify what the major barriers were right away. And actually, as you might guess, the first barrier was actually simple dollars and cents. So although you know the federal government, the provincial government, everybody wanted to see this happen, for those gears to move and for funds to get liberated and pathways to open up that someone could actually send just the, the, the actual dollars necessary to buy the first round ingredients, that was almost three quarters of the 60-day time period. So that's where our uh, strategic initiative fund from MI4 jumped in and our emergency coronavirus research fund. We actually, we paid for the first 60 days of the research just to get it moving. The other thing we learned was the problems on day one and the problems on day 60 were not the same. So there's two sets of enzymes that are required in this test. The first set is to pull the RNA out of the virus, 
when you have a swab, you want to convert that swab into some isolated RNA. And the second set of enzymes are the ones that do the test itself. And initially, we were very short on the first set of enzymes, but we had enough of the second. And somewhere around day 30, it pivoted. And we had plenty of the first one, and we were short of the second one. So we actually had to completely shift our uh, emphasis from one set of products to a second literally halfway through the initial ramp up. And what it really took was an iterative process with constant input from the end users who were part of the design process from the beginning. And I guess in your world, this is probably something that's much more familiar to you, but in, in developing tests in medicine and science, end users don't usually come in early in the design process. You know, we have beta testers way out at the end, but nobody really talks about input of end users at the early design stage. And that was absolutely critical here, or we would have invested six months in building something that there was absolutely no need for. And do you think this methodology of for example, identifying end user testing early, is that something that could become pervasive throughout the medical field? Or is it more the iterative process that you're uncovering around each problem is unique, we have to bring together different disciplines and then figure out the right methodology and innovation strategy in that specific case? So I think it's absolutely necessary for us to be getting end users uh, in much, much earlier. And I think we learned that not only from this project, but some other projects as we started to roll out telemedicine. So that's the other big digital innovation that we're seeing here, right? We got locked down like many places did for three months. Our hospital system shut down because all we were dealing with was COVID and we weren't allowed to see patients face to face as, as physicians. That's when telemedicine was born. It was born out of necessity instead of design. And what we've seen is that it's really being driven by the user experience. The patient experience is driving how telemedicine works. And as a result, it's turning into a much better product than had we done it with the classical development of getting companies to launch products and look at them. Uh, we're, we're really seeing that 98% that of what we thought we wanted in telemedicine is a waste of time but that there is a huge amount of stuff that's incredibly useful if we listen to the patient population and, and get a feel for what they want out of medicine. And it's being really co-created between physicians and patients as this moves forward. And of course, it's not just physicians, it's all caregivers. And this co-creation model where you really have early and iterative incorporation of end user feedback, it's not new to the world of app design and the world of computers, I'm sure, but in the world of healthcare, this is really new. We usually get a completely designed product if it's, an, uh, for example, an electronic medical record or a, or a telemedicine unit that somebody else somewhere thinks that they have done a perfect job in designing every single possible need we can have. And, and as users, we can't figure out how to turn it on its head to do the one thing we want to. And so the things that are being developed are really stripped down and they're, they're purpose built and they work really well. So did you wake up one morning and say, I'm going to apply tech innovation and user experience testing to the medicine? Or, you know, how did you come about this methodology and, and method of experimentation? So uh, absolutely not. I cannot take credit for having had any vision whatsoever. This is, this is simply uh, the, the use of a disruptor event 
to make us reassess the way that we're working. And, you know, there has never been in, in uh, our recent history as big a disruptor event to the medical profession as the coronavirus pandemic. Not just because of the impact on the healthcare system from a, the illness point of view, but the effects that the shutdown has had and the supply chain shifts have had to make us relook at the way we do our business. And there's been a forced integration of industry with the healthcare system because of these very in-your-face supply chain issues. When you can't get swabs to do the test, suddenly you realize that you have to pay attention to the way industry works. And when you start interacting with them, you realize they have a lot better ways to do things than the way that you have been doing them. So I, I think there's a real silver lining to this pandemic and how it's actually going to be disrupting our processes moving forward in the way that we innovate within the medical profession. And there's going to be a lot more public-private partnerships. And when you think about big data in context to um, you know, solving the, the, the problems that you're focused on, what evolution do you think you'll see due to bigger data sets and um, bigger computational power? So uh, the interesting thing, I, I think, and this is where I may be uh, a little bit countercultural, is the failure of big data to really seize the opportunity of the pandemic. So right out of the box, we had this signal that Blue Dot, that company using its AI algorithms, had been the ones that predicted this was going to be a pandemic, had identified the new emergence of the coronavirus. And everybody saw this, this incredible potential for AI to really lead how we've managed this outbreak. And, and actually, I, I would defy you to come up with some superb examples of success since that initial signal. You know, we've, we've had AI algorithms to diagnose the disease, but it turns out that most of those are based on looking at CAT scan signals of people's lungs. And of course, we don't do CAT scan signals to diagnose coronavirus in the community. The only time you get a CAT scan is if you're sick enough to be admitted and go to the ICU. And by then, all those people have been diagnosed anyhow. So that turned out to be a, a bit of a tempest in a teapot. When we look at our modeling data and our predictions, the AI algorithms haven't really taken over from sort of standardized hardcore modeling. And I don't know if that's just because we're in a growth phase and, and the data has, has not really, the, the uh, algorithms haven't had a chance to play with the data and mature enough, or if there really is a, uh, an issue with the fact that this is such a fast-moving outbreak that getting the large data sets to the people working with machine learning and AI has, has had so much of a lag that by the time things come out, the, the disease has moved on. But there, it hasn't really lived up to its promise yet, at least. I, I think there are some important lessons about big data, though. And I think we actually have to look at them from more of a, a cultural and, and societal issue. And the big data and the data flow and information issues that I think we've seen are ones of access and transparency. The, the analogy I like to use is that the, in the Vietnam War, it was considered a very different war because television brought it to the living room of Americans. They had an, a personal interaction with the visual and the facts of the Vietnam War at a level that had never been seen before. And that really changed how society developed its relationship with its perspectives and its opinions about that particular war. And I would suggest to you that this pandemic has a similar relationship, but with the internet, social media, and non-traditional media channels. You know just as much as I do 
about the case numbers in the United States today. You are accessing the exact same data I am as a researcher. It's online. You can get it in 30 seconds. Research is now being released in open access preprints before it's even peer reviewed by scientists. People are reading it. It's on the news. Decisions are being made and it's becoming politicized. We've seen the politicization of data. We've seen the manipulation of data for other agendas. We have this new open access society where data is accessible, but I don't think that our critical thinking algorithms, our filters, have caught up with it. And I think that's something we need to be asking ourselves. How do we deal with this deluge of data? And how do we deal with it responsibly in a way that allows us to incorporate it, think about it, recognize its limitations and move on, but without reacting from the hip and creating things like we saw with hydroxychloroquine or the current mask debate. Let's double click on that. People obviously have an abundance of information and this would apply today more than ever due to media, but I think it applies in many sectors beyond just medicine. You talked about the need for critical thinking. How would you break that down and what framework would you apply to give people the ability to filter information in this world of uh, you know, abundance of misinformation and, and abundance of media? It's, it's actually the biggest challenge I think we're facing, and I would not claim to have any great answers to it. I mean, the traditional model has always been that information is filtered through essentially what are key opinion leaders. And whether those were the mainstream media, whether those were scientific leaders and medical leaders, government and policy leaders, that's the traditional way that for most of our society, we've received our information. And you had to wait for it in measured doses where it had been pre-digested and analyzed. You know, our parents watched the six o'clock and 11 o'clock news, and that's it. That's all they got during the day. And that came to them in a filtered, analyzed, organized, and boxed way. Whereas you and I have a 24-7, every minute of the day, unfiltered, unorganized influx of data. We're not going to be able to rely on this top-down analytical approach anymore. And I think one of the things we're going to have to do is actually reform the way we educate people so that it becomes a bottom-up fundamental. It's not just about learning your ABCs, your one, two, threes. It's about learning your ABCs, one, two, threes, and how to think critically about information that people are giving you every day of your life. Because this deluge is just going to get better or worse, depending on your perspective. There's no sign that we're going to have any other framework to access data. And people are going to have to be able to come up with credibility ratings for the source of the data and understand the limitations and become comfortable with shifting information. One of the biggest things we saw in this uh, outbreak that highlighted is people are not comfortable with a lack of absolutes and people are not comfortable with changes in the data. So you, when the outbreak starts out and people say, don't use masks, and then suddenly people say, no, the science now says do use masks, that fails at a broad scale across the population. It really fails, and we're seeing the fallout from it. But that's reality. Knowledge is not a static thing. Knowledge evolves. And I think we have failed as a society to teach the fundamental principles of how knowledge evolves and how to change your own opinions with new knowledge. I think what we actually have to teach people is to have the willingness to re-examine their own personal frameworks with the understanding that their personal frameworks are allowed to change when data changes. We've, we've 
created a society where people become so invested in their opinions that any change is incorporated as somehow a personal failure because it's a failure in, in your own personal mindset. And I think that's a very dangerous way that we've taught people to be. We've taught people to be dogmatic. And that doesn't allow nimbleness. That doesn't allow you to pivot. That doesn't allow you to say, this is not working. I need to go at 90 degrees. It's orthogonal time here. And I think that's one of the things, it's, it's the bias of, I've launched on this path, I'm gonna keep on this path, even though all the signs are telling me this is the wrong path. Um, and, and there is disruptive discussion about thinking about this and getting rid of these inherent biases and continuing the same path. But I think we need to integrate this into our educational system at a much earlier stage. We need to be teaching people how to think. We don't need to teach people how to memorize anymore. The data is so accessible. It's a waste of time. You need to focus on the fundamental precepts of critical thinking. What do you think is the future of education? I think that's exactly what it is. I've seen the change just in the past few years. I have my own children. I have four. They all have worked through the, uh, the education system, and they're actually all going off to university now. And in the last five years, I've really seen a much greater emphasis on critical thinking than memorization, than data acquisition, than fact. And, and it, it's really coming through in the way they approach the data. They, they really want to know what's going on, and they want to know why. And it's not an aggressive why. It's not a, I'm challenging your opinions because I don't respect you, I don't believe, but they really want to be convinced. And they can be convinced and they seem to be more nimble. And I think that that really at the moment is, is happening in, in late secondary school. But I think those precepts have to be inculcated much earlier in our educational stream. And I think we have a lot more heavy lifting to do in that department. Not that I am a early stage educator, obviously, I'm a university professor, and I teach at a much later level of uh, life. And what impact do you think that training for critical thinking will have on mental health and people's ability to ingest information? I think it's going to have a huge effect on mental health. If you think about it, one of the biggest causes of stress, anxiety, and depression is cognitive dissonance, right? When you have your preset beliefs and what you want to be true, and what you think should be true, and reality is just constantly telling you that that's wrong, but you can't let go of it because you're too wedded to it. That cognitive dissonance is a huge part of the stress in our lives. Just let's look at the COVID outbreak, right? You're in your house, you have three small kids running around who are trying to do telelearning, you're on a Zoom call at work, and one of your kids runs through the room. You feel frustrated. You don't want them to. You feel somehow it's unprofessional. But everybody is in exactly the same boat. But how hard is it to release that fact that having a kid run across the background of your Zoom call at work is somehow unprofessional? Well, even though it does nothing, it actually has no ill effect on anything. It's a concept that we just can't get past and it causes us undue stress. And so many people have found working at home to be one of the most stressful things that they've ever done because they can't seem to keep that, that division between real life and work separate enough to be comfortable. Fascinating. So let's touch on disruption. You mentioned this earlier that disruption accelerated the way people uh, think about innovation when it comes to medicine and public partner private partnerships. How would you define disruption and how can you use it as a tool for good in innovation? So I think 
I'm not an expert in this area. In my mind, a disruptive event is an event that requires you to go outside of your daily channels, your standard working arrangements. And that can, of course, be good or bad. If, if it uh, compromises efficiency, if it compromises your delivery of service, in the case of the COVID outbreak, you know, it obviously, when we ran out of masks, when we ran out of our supply chain, when we had too many patients and not enough beds or too many patients and not enough respirators, that's the bad side of disruption. And we saw that in many places, Milan is a great example and, and Northern Italy. The good part, of course, is when it allows us to recognize that there are new pathways that are more effective, that we've ossified in our ways, and that many of the processes that we're used to using are inefficient, ineffective, or actually get in the way of what we're trying to accomplish. To, to me, that's the, the yin and the yang, the good and the bad of disruption. And, and we certainly saw all of this play out with COVID-19. And you mentioned the advent of telemedicine and that accelerating Talk to me about the digital transformation of the medical profession and where you think we are on that spectrum. So I think the medical profession is uh, well ahead in some areas and quite far behind in others. So the uh, access to information, the uh, move to real-time access to information in the delivery of medical care and the digitization of technology in medicine is well advanced. It's, it's, It's very much at the forefront of some areas. When I see patients, I literally can perform data searches in the medical literature in front of them. When I look at scans, I can actually get real-time results and share them with the patients. We can review them together. I can show them their CAT scans. These are all examples of where we're way ahead. Some of the other places that, frankly, we've been very far behind are the use of support uh, infrastructure, things like the electronic medical record, which has been the best and worst thing that has ever happened to medicine. The ability now to access all of a patient's medical records digitally, instantly, is huge. But the way that this is rolled out and the the role that it plays in the patient-physician interaction has been devastating in two ways. One is to physician efficiency and burnout, and the second is to uh, patient-provider relationships. The current EMRs we use are incredibly unwieldy, slow, and bogged down the efficiency of us doing our daily work. And they've created a situation where we are spending our entire patient interaction staring at a computer screen and ignoring our patients. And the caregiver aspect of medicine has fallen by the wayside as we are now dealing with a computer instead of a patient the vast majority of the time. And that has been a very difficult thing for many physicians and many patients to deal with. The other problem is that constant deluge of data, the real-time access, and the ability of patients to interact with physicians 24-7 has led to burnout, wide scale. You can no longer disconnect because the data is coming at you 24 hours a day. And there's always a sense that you're missing something or that you need to deal with it instantly. And disconnecting from this digital world when you're dealing with healthcare and and the desire to deliver healthcare has become a real problem. And and work-life balance has disappeared for many uh, caregivers because we haven't figured out how to deal with this kind of real-life access issues and, and our daily lives. There's a real yin and yang there that we haven't figured out. The place we're behind is telemedicine. That's the new thing. It's, it's, it's ridiculous that we have not done this, right? I've consulted with many of my colleagues, and it's very clear that at least 50% of what we do does not require the physical presence of our patients, right? 
I need to see you the first time. I need to do a physical exam. I need to make the diagnosis. But when I'm going over the results of a lab test that you had last week and it's completely normal and I know you're completely fine and I don't need you to come into my office to spend a half an hour traveling, an hour trying to deal with parking, another half hour waiting to see me and then rewinding all of that so that I can tell you, yeah, you're great. Everything's on exactly how I need it to be. Thanks and it's nice to see you. That's a complete waste of everybody's time. Now you can be at home doing whatever you want and wait until your computer chimes and I'll be in there and out of there in 15 minutes and you had a normal day. You talked about burnout in the medical profession and we see this applying everywhere, I think, in culture. What are strategies that you'd recommend to manage burnout? And from your observations of working with different types of people across different industries, do you feel that certain industries are more susceptible to burnout than others? Yeah, so I think burnout is dependent on a couple of factors. One is the type of, of industry and service you're delivering, how mission critical and how time sensitive it is. And obviously medicine is really never going to feel like something that is not a, a very important time sensitive issue. I'm sure there are certain things like looking at somebody's toenails and wondering whether they have a fungal infection that really could probably wait until Monday from Friday night and no one's going to get stressed about that. But there's always this huge specter of, does that symptom relate to something a little more serious than I think it does? And the test that I've ordered is going to tell me, and I really want to make sure that it's not that serious thing, even though it's only a minor chance that it is, that makes the majority of what we do seem very critical to us. And then the other issue is, when does the information come in? the requests, the data, the test results, whatever it is in that particular industry. And again, in medicine, we're getting 24-7 data coming in. The machines that process blood cultures read them all night long and can issue results all night long. Biochemistry results come in in the middle of the night. X-rays, it, 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 it is the kind of thing that doesn't lend itself to nine to five. People don't get sick on a nine to five schedule. And so you almost wonder if we really need to be evolving the equivalent to shift work, uh, where there are people who actually have designated windows to cover not the day-to-day, -day, you're seeing your patients, you're doing your visits, but the data that's coming in, that there's somebody who's designated to cover that during fixed time periods so that you can truly disconnect. Because without truly disconnecting, that low-grade stress, that low-grade tension just continues to build and build and build. And we've seen it. We're seeing it across our system. What products or services do you think should exist that don't today? We have a lot of listeners that are within large organizations, some entrepreneurs. Everyone would be curious to get your perspective on, you know, what's, where's the gap? So I think there's two ways to address these gaps. Um, one is to follow a patient through a hospital or a medical clinic for 24 hours and watch them navigate the system. Because I've done that a few times. We, we were uh, moving to a patient-centered care model. And I actually walked with a patient through the entire setup of our infectious disease clinic from getting into the parking lot to going home and just tracked them to see what we needed to do to innovate. And the things that we found actually had nothing to do with anything that as a caregiver would ever occur to me. Silly things like the fact that we had set up our doors so that the patients had to open the doors with their hands to get in. So if you're running an infectious disease clinic where you're worried about most of your patients being infected or having unusual infections, you probably don't want them all to touch the exact same spot on the door. 
And we had never occurred to us that maybe putting in an automated door in an infectious disease clinic might be a smart thing to do, but it was just following that process. I'll give you one request for all of your designers out there. Why is it not possible for me to carry around a tablet when I am doing my rounds in the hospital? And when I walk into a patient's room, that tablet immediately illuminates with all of that patient's EMR data secured by whatever type of protocol you like, whether it's face recognition, the patient's RFID, et cetera, et cetera, so that instantly when I am discussing with that patient, I have two access without 14 logins, three passwords, and a partridge in a pear tree, and leaving the patient's room and finding another computer, all of the data I need to answer the questions that that patient is going to ask me. And the ability to deal with any of the orders and things that I need to do on site with the person. And, and that just doesn't exist in any healthcare system that I've ever been in. Instead, we have to then go and deal with all of it in a separate place, in a separate location, and try and remember it all or disrupt our rounds or whatever else. It, it seems like this should be the easiest thing in the world to design from people that design these type of apps. And yet that product doesn't exist. We definitely see the aggregation challenges when it comes to technology and platforms as being one of the harder ones. Um, and I think that as products and services and software matures, APIs are the new way to connect. So for those uh, viewers out there that are familiar, there's, uh, there's a good challenge for you for, for a great opportunity. Would love to to get a sense, you know, of what resources you listen to, read, uh, watch uh, that that really kind of spur your thinking around innovation. I actually try to read literature, scientific literature in the engineering field, um, and obviously that that as close to uh, science as I can, as far away from medicine as I can get, but not directly into things like metallurgy. Um, I find that reading biomedical uh, engineering literature, I find that looking at material sciences in the biomedical space, and then looking at the uh, programming applications in that area to be the ones that really spark the most interest in me, because that, that's where the, the sort of application technology, uh, or at least the potential for application technology uh, rears its head. And that's where I see things for the first time. And then reaching out to individuals uh, in our own community to see about uh, applying those principles to the problems that we're facing. I find that to be a really rich source of information. Engineers are smart people. One of our investors still talks about how entrepreneurs aren't solving big enough problems. Uh, do you share that sentiment or do you feel that, that you're exposed to entrepreneurs and, and uh, people in, in business that are tackling the right problems? So I guess the, the, the perspective there is a very different one because when you're in medicine, much of the research and innovation that we see in the classic medical fields is incremental. It is not transformative. And so when we see the transformative stuff that happens outside of the classic medical space applied to medical problems, we're blown away by, by how big a transformative change that is. But you're absolutely right. If you compare that to the transformative changes we see outside of the medical space, sure, we're not inventing the microwave here. But what we are seeing is that in our own sort of innovation space and timeline, the outside medical people are much more transformative than the inside medical people. We started this discussion, you know, with you giving the example of multiple disciplines coming together. What advice would you have to entrepreneurs or people in business out there uh, to best get to know and understand um, the ways in, in which they can work and collaborate with the medical community and the engineering community to come up with great solutions? 
So it, it is a challenge because uh, the way that our healthcare system is set up both in Canada and the U.S. right now has not left much space for that type of creativity in the healthcare provider's lifestyle and day. There really is now a regimented every minute counts type of uh, problem. So recognizing that time limitation and coming up with creative challenges around it is actually the first and probably most important step. And then the second is embedding yourself in the problem. It, it, we uh, put together these innovation teams at McGill where we bring together people from our uh, business school with actually teams of surgeons and they actually go into the OR together to see what the challenges are in the operating room. And the people from the business side, from the entrepreneur side, are blown away because in their minds, they had no idea what actually happened. They, they can't understand this space without the hands-on uh, experience. And, and I guess it's just a fancy way of saying, get your hands dirty and get in there and don't read about it. Go do it, go see it, go shadow, get actually physically involved, put your hands on it, try it yourself. Because then you really see what the limitations are. And you really see what the challenges are. Got it. And what advice would you have for uh, young people out there who want to innovate and who want to really make transformational change in the medical community and beyond? So I think that you should not listen to the medical community when they tell you no. That's the first and most important thing, because that's going to be the standard response. Sadly, we are, as I mentioned, less innovative than the entrepreneur community. And we need to be pushed as a group to move to the next step. That is changing. The younger generation of physicians and physician scientists really are open to it. They're the ones that we're seeing developing their own innovative and entrepreneurial solutions. But you need to be pushy and you need to be able to push past the, oh no, that's not going to work stage, which is likely going to be the first response you get. But I don't think that that should discourage you. I think you should be anticipating it and be ready with your thank you for bringing that challenge to my attention. Here's how I'm going to deal with it type of response. Incredible. Well, thanks so much for the innovation you've brought to the profession, the inspiration you have for people. I took away so much in terms of just uh, thinking about new innovative ways to iterate and the similarities between solving problems. So, so appreciative of your time and passion and thanks for saving lives and, and uh, really helping to create meaningful change. Thank you. I think the best is yet to come. Today on Decoding Digital, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Don Shepard to speak about innovation and immunology. It's fascinating to see the similarities in the way that people approach innovation in the medical profession, engineering professions, and in entrepreneurship around the business world. What was abundantly clear is that agile innovation methodologies and critical thinking skills are more important than ever to create transformational change. The disruption that's occurring in the world today has a profound impact on the way that we work and innovate and will drive new business opportunities for the next generation of entrepreneurs. Taking a step back, COVID-19 has had a significant scientific and economic effects, but I wanted to acknowledge the tremendous human impact the pandemic has had on communities around the world. This reality touched the Apteric community earlier this year when we lost one of our colleagues, Eve Francis. Eve was an incredible man who was admired by everyone he worked with. We miss him every day, and though our hearts are heavy, we cherish his memory and keep him and his family in our thoughts. As we work to end this pandemic, 
we encourage everyone to wear a mask, practice social distancing, and above all, take care of yourselves and each other. On the next episode of Decoding Digital. Go find a meaningful problem. Like if you find a meaningful problem that actually will impact people, and this kind of goes back to where we started being a doctor, find a meaningful problem where you're actually solving a problem for somebody. And ask yourself, is there more than one person in the world that has the problem? And if the answer is yes, a lot of people do, and it is meaningful, then I think you should go full force and do it. Co-founder and COO of Cloudflare, Michelle Zatlin. Thanks for listening to Decoding Digital. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. To learn more, visit decodingdigital.com. Until next time.